Welcome to Steppin' Out, the 12-step meeting on the air. Tonight you'll meet real people with true stories of addiction and recovery. And now, Steppin' Out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Steppin' Out, America's 12-step meeting on the air. I'm Denise M., and our meeting is focusing on the addiction of alcohol, and we're doing sort of like, uh, even though we're not affiliated with any 12-step meeting, we're doing uh, what would be considered, I guess, like an open AA meeting on the radio. So with that said, let's go to our first guest, and uh, I'd like to welcome you. Hi. Hi. I'm Reva. I'm an alcoholic, Um, and I wanted to say that Reva is really not my real name, and that's the good thing about anonymity. Uh, I can talk about my alcoholism and not necessarily anything else about who I am or what I do. Um, And it's one of the reasons that um, I've um, really liked being in Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of years. Um, That's a very important principle of the 12-step programs. Um, I'd like to tell you that I was um, brought up in a family where my mother did have a drinking problem, which I never knew about until I got sober myself. Never saw my mother drunk. Uh, She controlled her drinking. But when I was sober already a few years, I learned that this was a serious problem all her life and that she, in fact, was having a very difficult time at a late age in her life with her drinking. Uh, the progression of the disease of alcoholism had finally taken a hold of her, um, as well as it, of course, had with me. I did not start drinking until I was 21 years old. I really shied away from it. I had seen a lot of friends of our family drink a lot in the culture I came from in Europe. There was a lot of drinking. People got drunk regularly and just laughed about it. And a lot of people died from alcohol-related illnesses, uh, liver, etc., uh, but didn't ever blame it on the drinking. So I just felt that, that I would not do this. I would not drink. However, I was a depressed youngster, and at the age of 13... I tried to kill myself with 100 aspirin. And when I didn't die and woke up three days later, and nobody even knew about it because they were away for the weekend, I decided that, you know, I I wasn't meant to die. I might as well live. But I I couldn't get out of this isolation and depression. Uh, In high school, as an example, uh, I... I never had friends. I shied away from all the people, peers. I hated school. I took jobs as an usherette in dark movie theaters and uh, sort of lived in a fantasy world of my own. Eventually, at 21, I moved to New York, pretended that I was going to college. I signed up for college courses but I didn't actually attend the classes. I felt it was very important to have my family think that I was okay, that I was attending college. But I really was too afraid to go to classes. I'd buy the books, 
And that's how I came to go to bars. I decided I would go to a bar where people were hanging out and maybe order a drink and just nurse a drink all night long, but be amongst people and see what what the music was like and what you know what was going on in these sort of discotheque bars. I always had a job. So since the age of 16, when I was in Usher Reading and doing these jobs in movies, I always had jobs helping people uh, later on, like social work type of jobs, even though I didn't have a degree in social work. I looked older for my age, and so I was a counselor with uh, teenage girls. I was uh, working with the Quakers as a counselor in the women's prison. But at 5 o'clock, I would go to these bars. And I'd order a drink, but not drink it. And I would sit there and listen to music, and people would try to pick me up, but I was terrified to talk to anyone. So one day, naturally, like they say, if you go to the barber shop long enough, you get a haircut. So one day, I sipped the martini. And I did not like it, but I felt nice. And by the time I finished that one vodka martini straight up with an olive, which I'd ordered because it was glamorous, it was elegant, it was in a long-stemmed glass. And once I'd finished, it took me about an hour, that martini, I remember going to the ladies' room, looking in the mirror and saying, you have found it. You have found it. You have found the thing that's going to release you, free you. I can talk. I feel great. I'm going to talk to that man that was talking to me. I'm going to talk to these people, which I'd already been doing for the last 15 minutes. <laughs> and 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 I can walk to the jukebox and play music. I don't have to listen what others are playing. I feel courageous. I feel great. I feel beautiful. These are things I had not felt. Actually, I was very attractive, but I'd never felt it. I'd always felt fat. These were things my family had made me, sort of drummed into me, especially my poor mother who must have been a dry drunk all her, most of her life, controlling her drinking. And so she was very critical. Now I didn't feel any of those things. <clears throat> I ordered a second martini. And that's where my drinking took off. And for many years, it was fine. It was great. I'm, I danced on tables. I went to after-hours clubs. And at 9 o'clock, I was at the Quaker Committee interviewing the women in prison and doing great, relating to them. Most of them were there on drug charges, you know, getting high charges, prostitution, buying drugs, things like that. I could relate. I was getting high. I knew what it meant to feel good, to change your mood by just having a drink. Well, they got 
I on other stuff, but I could relate to these women in prison, and I could relate to people who had problems, you know, who had gotten to prison because they got high or sold drugs, etc. So I did very well on my job. And uh, later on, I had jobs working with the mentally ill, etc. I always had the touch with the people who needed my help, so to speak. And at night, I danced on tables, taught people how to tango. <laughs> and these are things I couldn't do sober. So this went on for a number of years until, I guess, unbeknownst to me, I started passing that invisible line that when we are drinking alcoholically, we do, well, we may not be aware of it, but we do sort of pass that and go over that invisible line. Reva, we're going to talk about what happened when you did go over that invisible line in just a couple of moments. Uh, you're listening to Stepping Out, America's only 12-step radio show. If you'd like information, if you think you have a problem with any substance, please go to our website at www.powerfulradio.com. We'll be back with Reva's story right after this. Register now and take part in the National Conference of the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence, taking place in Philadelphia from November 9th to the 13th. New approaches for addressing opioid addiction, treatment, and recovery will take center stage during an action-packed lineup of events. Visit www.aatod.org. That's aatod.org to register. At the center of any movement, there's a story. Come see the inspiring play about the two men who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, now playing off-Broadway at the Soho Playhouse. Two men on death's door from drinking discover that the path to recovery begins with each other. Critics rave. Bill W. and Dr. Bob is gripping, fascinating. It never forgets the humor of the human experience. Visit BillWandDrBob.com slash powerful or call 866-811-4111. One-on-one addiction counseling for athletes offers innovative and uniquely personalized treatment methods treating all types of addictions that often exist in the high-pressure, winning-is-the-only-thing world of athletes. If you or someone you know is an athlete and struggling with an addiction, there is help. Go to www.athleteaddictions.com. That's athleteaddictions.com. Athleteaddictions.com. Welcome back to Stepping Out, the 12-step radio show. I'm Denise M., and we were listening to Reva's story, and Reva was telling us about how she had her first martini at 21, liked what it did to her, um, liked it for a number of years, but then at a certain point, she crossed an invisible line, and she's going to start there and tell us what happened. The point, actually, was not that long after. Thinking back, it was in the late 1960s, when I uh, was running away from someone in the snow on a New Year's Eve. Of course, high, you know, drinking in, in a bar in the village 
on New Year's Eve. And I thought I had, I had a fight with this person. And I thought that I was being chased and I was running for a taxi and I slipped and fell. And I wound up in Bellevue, fracture ward. This was very startling to me, to suddenly not be able to move because my pelvic bone was fractured. This was very startling. I had a friend go out and get me a bottle of J&B. She brought that in. I had to have a drink to cope with this. <laughs> However, when I left Bellevue on crutches, like two weeks later, I was uh, alarmed secretly about my drinking in bars. I felt I, I might wind up becoming an alcoholic if I keep this up, staying in these bars, fighting with people, arguing, uh, uh, going to, you know, after-hours clubs. This was really alarming, winding up in fracture wards. Well, I did what I later learned was sort of a emotional, psych, sort of a psychological, geographical change in my life. I decided not to drink in bars anymore. <laughs> I decided to just drink at home. So from, let's say, 1969 or 70 until I came with the grace of God, I have to say, into Alcoholics Anonymous in 1982, I drank at home in isolation. My drinking really progressed. I also changed where I lived, and I changed my job. I changed everything as far as I was concerned. I moved from the village in um, New York City to above 14th Street to the 40s, which is like 30 blocks. To me, this was like leaving the country. <laughs> I felt this was a major change. I got a job near where I lived now, which was, again, a major geographical change. And I drank at home. No one would see me, and no one would know about it. I didn't have to be exhibiting myself in public. After all, I was a social worker. I would keep it very quiet. I would have just a few close friends at the apartment to drink with me, and... That was it. I, uh, it. I would just change my life. And also, I had heard that drinking vodka and martinis did make you dance on tables. <laughs> well, I was going to, I had heard that if, you that if you drink scotch, that would be more or less the kind of booze that the people drank, who played golf drank. <laughs> So I would drink scotch from now on and be sort of a modest, quiet drinker. Drink at home and be sort of like the people who play golf type of drinker. And so for a few years, I had even affairs with people in my apartment. No more going out, no more dancing on tables. But eventually, I even stopped having close relationships. 
I would make a fool out of myself. I felt that drinking at home after work, where no one, no one really saw how I drank, was best. So after work, I would go out with the group for an hour or so from the job, because I found people at the job who drank like me, I thought. And after work, we would stop for drinks, and then I would go home and drink the way I like to drink. No one seemed to know that when I came to work with booze on my breath from the night before, that I was drinking alcoholically. When one person, a fellow social worker, said to me, Sometimes, have you been drinking? I would say, well, I was seeing so-and-so off on the boat last night. They had a, a party, or I was at a wedding late. But eventually, I was out so much, and I had isolated in despair and loneliness in my apartment so many years, and hung on to that job so desperately that when I was out again for several weeks because I was not able to get there because I reeked of booze and finally did get there, desperately trying, reeking of booze one morning and another social worker said to me, she was reading the New York Times, she lowered the paper and said, you know, if you keep drinking like that, you're going to wind up in an in a insane asylum, in jail, killing yourself or somebody else. <coughs> and then she went back to reading her New, New York Times. And that reached me. And she was like the person put in my path, let's say the angel, to give me the message. And that day... I. I was so astounded by, by what she said. I left. I couldn't stay there. I had dark sunglasses on. I had a trench coat on. I was trying to hide even on the job. And I just walked out of the agency. And I knew that I would never drink again. I did drink again that same day. I went to a bar on Ninth Avenue, ordered a vodka martini straight up with an olive. And I said to myself, I know this is my last drink. I don't know how why I know or how I can possibly stop. But this is my last drink. I went home. I had that one martini. Went to my apartment and white-knuckled it for three, four hours. I just sat there saying, I'm never going to drink again. I'm never going to drink again. But after three, four hours, I knew I couldn't stop. So how, how did you get to AA? Because we're going to wrap it up now. Yeah. So, so uh, you called them? I, or? No. I didn't. I knew I couldn't stop drinking. Okay. So I went to my roof. Oh, God. I was pretty smashed from that one martini. One drink had done it. And three, four hours, I was like out of my mind, knowing I couldn't stop drinking. And the street looked, they're looking down at the street. I knew, I realized that the street looked very good. It looked like velvet. And I realized I, I had to just step off this roof because I couldn't stop drinking. But something happened on the roof. A person came on the roof. 
and said, her, said, you don't have to do that. You're an alcoholic. Someone that I had sent out to get me booze on Sundays, a drunkard, mm-hmm. came on the roof, was on the roof, mm-hmm. and I heard his voice say, you don't have to do that. You're an alcoholic. You can get help. Wow. And I left the roof, and I called um, a hospital, and I went to the detox. And by that night, I was in a detox ward. And from there, I found AA. That's wonderful. Mm -hmm. How many years has it been for you? 20. Reva, thank you. I mean, your story says it all. Okay. Thank you. We'll be back with more after these words on Stepping Out, the 12-step radio show. Register now and take part in the National Conference of the American Association for the Treatment of Opioid Dependence, taking place in Philadelphia from November 9th to the 13th. New approaches for addressing opioid addiction, treatment, and recovery will take center stage during an action-packed lineup of events. Visit www.aatod.org. That's aatod.org to register. One-on-one addiction counseling for athletes offers innovative and uniquely personalized treatment methods treating all types of addictions that often exist in the high-pressure, winning-is-the-only-thing world of athletes. If you or someone you know is an athlete and struggling with an addiction, there is help. Go to www.athleteaddictions.com. That's athleteaddictions.com. Athleteaddictions.com. Do you think you might have a substance abuse problem or know you have one? Chat to Recovery is a -a one-of-a-kind premier online program where you can get help from the privacy of your home. Chat to Recovery was developed by experienced specialists who can help. The Chat to Recovery program is very affordable, and if you sign up now, you can get a special promotional offer. So go to chattorecovery.com. That's chat, the number two, recovery.com chat to recovery.com. 